My name is Stuart McCrae. The joy of serving on staff as one of the pastors, and we are continuing our series in James. If you'll turn to James chapter 4, we are picking up in the flow of conversation here of this letter that James, uh, that Pastor Doug went through with us in verses 1 through 6. We're going to pick up looking at verses 7 through 12 this week. Relational strife is inevitable. We, We live in a fallen and broken world with people who at best are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, but yet are still struggling with remaining sin. Arguments, strife, conflict, inevitable. None of us want to experience, certainly we don't want to be the cause of it, but if that's going to be true, then we need to understand what is behind our, our conflict. What's the source of our conflict? And so, James asked a revealing question in verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The the whole passage then that Pastor Doug looked at last week in verses 1 through 6 was really a diagnostic text where James said, if we want to consider the the source, the cause of our arguments and conflicts with one another, we really need to start with ourselves. Pastor Doug said, James 4, verses 1 to 6, tells me to look closely at the heart of the one person I can change, the heart I can affect, mine. That's where God wants believers in Jesus Christ to start, he says, not trying to change the other person or demanding that God change my circumstances. I need to start by examining my own heart and motives first to see if I'm sinning and then handle my sin accordingly. And so then Pastor Doug summarized James's teaching as our anger and arguments with others stem from wrong passions, wrong prayers, and wrong priorities. And listen, none of us are exempt. None of us are innocent from getting frustrated, angry with others, arguing and getting in conflicts in order to get what we want. We're all in need of treatment. Now this morning, we are going to look at the treatment that's in verses 7 through 10, but it's interesting in verses 11 through 12, James brings back up this theme of relational strife. So so we're going to start there. We're going to look at verses 11 through 12 first, more relational strife, and then we're going to look at the treatment for relational strife in verses 7 through 10. So verses 11 through 12, follow along as I read it. Do not speak evil against or slander Criticize, speak ill, badmouth one another, brothers, and here's why. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Leviticus 19.16 says, You should not go around as a slanderer among your people. And then in verse 18, two verses later, we read, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which James called the royal law in chapter 2. When we, when we speak evil against... Slander, criticize, speak ill of, badmouth, or judge others. We, we put ourselves above the law, de- determining for ourselves what, what we ought to and ought not to obey, rather than putting ourselves underneath the law in submission to it. So James logically concludes at the end of verse 11, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? To judge the law is to not be a law follower, but to be a law maker. This is foolishness of the highest order. This is the type of wisdom, actually, that James calls from below. It is hellish wisdom that he describes at the end of chapter 3 to to put ourselves in the place of God as judge. Because James says there's only one lawmaker, one judge, and that is the God of the universe. We're we're not the lawgiver. We're not the judge. We don't know the hearts and minds, the thoughts and intentions of our neighbor. And James is confronting all of us. None of us are completely innocent from speaking against or slandering or criticizing, bad-mouthing or judging others. So so just a a moment of self-reflection. Have you you deeply considered the, the spiritual implications of what James says it is to speak evil or judge others? In those moments, James tells us, James tells us that we've determined now that we don't, we don't actually say this. This is just sort of the, the unconscious mind at work. But James is saying this is, this is effectively what we're, what we're saying in those moments. We're saying that God's law doesn't apply to me. It, it might apply to somebody else, but it doesn't apply to me with this person because I, I know better. And the reason that we would say that we know better is because that we believe that we have some sort of omniscience about this person. Oh, I, I know what's going on here. I know exactly what they're thinking and what their intentions are. Oh, let me tell you, I can read between the lines and see what's going on there. We, we think we have clear understanding to know what's going on, so we judge, we make accusations, and we're not loving neighbor, and we usurp God's role in the act. It's sin, and And James has the treatment. So let's let's look at this treatment of relational strife in verses 7 through 10. Follow along as I read it. We're actually going to include verse 6. Verse 6 is a transitional verse. It it is connected to verses 1 through 5, and it's connected through to verses 7 through 12. So follow along. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, the scripture God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The the big idea here is that sin, sin underlies relational strife. The the treatment is repentance. Since sin underlies relational strife, the treatment is repentance. And James, in verses 7 through 10, provides us with five aspects of humble repentance. Now, the the word repentance doesn't specifically show up here, but that's what's functionally being described because our relational strife is fundamentally rebellion against God. I mean, James told us in verses one through four that at the root of our relational strife, we've replaced God as first in our hearts, becoming spiritual adulterers, 
friends of the world and enemies of God. And then we just saw that speaking ill and judging others is, is to usurp God's role as judges, to think of ourselves as judge, being able to judge rightly others' motives and intentions. So since sin, proud rebellion against God underlies relational strife, the treatment is repentance. So let's look at the first aspect that James provides. Submit humbly to God. This is in the first sentence of verse 7 and in verse 10. We're going to read 6 again. We're going to read 6 and verse 7 and verse 10 again. Here we go. But God gives more grace. Therefore, as a result, it says the scriptures, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, as a result of the truths in verse 6, to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here's the big idea. Our sin is fundamentally against God. So first and foremost, repentance is submitting humbly to God. The call to submit to God is a result of the truth claims in verse 6. That's what the word therefore is communicating to us. James tells us in verses 1 through 4 that we, we sin in relational strife, but then in verse 6, James drops hope for change. He says, God outgives your sin with his empowering grace so you can humbly turn back to him. So what does it look like for the proud, the rebellious, to be humble? Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. These are conceptually the same for James. And they together form the overarching commands of repentance with everything else sort of in the middle filling it out. The, the primary commands here of repentance is submit, resubmit yourselves to God, humble yourselves before the Lord. Now, humble submission to God means we seek to reorder our lives and loves underneath God for the purpose of obedience. You, you see, sin is disorder at the highest level. It is dysfunction at the highest level. And so submission is seeking to reorder our lives underneath God for the purpose of obedience. And so practically, let me suggest that reordering our lives underneath God means allowing Him to show us where we've gone off the rails. And that looks like allowing His revelation, His Word to speak into our lives. It's the Word of God that's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God, through His Word, must be allowed to confront us if it is to reorder our lives and loves. And we plainly put submission to God's word is the primary way that we submit to God himself. That is his revelation. That is the all-sufficient word for our lives. 
Now listen, faithful brothers and sisters can be a huge help in showing us our blind spots. We need help. Pride is going to still suggest to us that we can, we can kind of stay a bit in the shadows. Maybe we can kind of do this on our own with some help from God. But humility tells us that we need help. And God has given us the community of believers to come alongside us as well, to help us to see our blind spots, to speak God's word into our lives as we seek to reorder our lives and our loves underneath God for the purpose of obedience. The end of verse 6 says, God gives grace to the humble. And verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The great mystery of the Christian life is everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paradoxically, the, the lower we go, the more he lifts us up. So the first aspect of repentance is submit humbly to God. The second aspect of repentance that James provides us is resist the devil. This is in the second sentence of verse 7, follow as I read it. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's the big idea. Relational strife involves spiritual warfare. So James calls us to resist the devil with, with a promise that if we do resist him, he will flee from us. Relational strife involves spiritual warfare. The devil is the adversary, the accuser, and the slanderer of God's people. So think of it like this. James is effectively telling us that when we treat Brothers and sisters, when we treat believers like enemies and slander them and accuse them that we are following the example of the devil. So he tells us to stop, repent, resist the devil. Now we can't blame the devil for our sin. You, you and I are responsible for our sin. We, we can't blame others. Well, if if so-and-so would have, I would not have gotten angry. No, we cannot blame others. We cannot blame the devil. You and I are responsible for the, the, the anger that generates in our hearts and flies out of our mouths. We are responsible for the sinful judgments that we make. We are responsible for our sin. That said, there is real spiritual warfare happening in our relational Strife, Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a cosmic battle afoot in our relational strife. And so how do we resist the devil? Well, first, there is no greater resistance to the devil than submission to God. If we want to upend the devil's schemes, there is nothing better than humble, joyful submission to God. I said, we, we can learn some practical things from Jesus and how he resisted Satan during his temptation in the wilderness. Jesus did not resist the devil by Dependence on inner personal strength. No, he resisted the devil by dependence upon the word of God. Over and again, his resistance, his pushback is God's word says, the scriptures say. 
Later in Ephesians 6.17, we're told that our weapon in this cosmic battle is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The, the devil is described like a, a roaring lion, an apex predator prowling around see, seeking to eat people up. And, and, and if you don't want to be a meal, you, you must know how to wield the sword. So, are you able to effectively wield the sword of the Spirit to fight off the devil's temptations and lies. Do you know the precious truths and sweet promises of God's word to do battle with? Inner, interpersonal strength, pep talks won't work God's word must be wielded. Let me also remind you that if you are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are no longer a slave to sin and Satan. You are a child of God that has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you are empowered to be able to say no to sin and no to Satan, to resist him and say yes to righteousness in God. Listen, the reality is if you're not in submission to God, whether you're in opposition to God or just in indifference towards God, then the devil has no quarrel with you. He has you right where he wants you. But for those who are submitting to God in Christ, that could be each and every one of us this morning, if you would put simple faith in Jesus. For those who are submitting to God in Christ, we're called to resist the devil. That's part of repentance, turning away from following his ways. The third aspect of repentance is draw near to God. This is found in the first sentence in verse eight, follow as I read it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's the big idea. Sin brings dysfunction to our relationship with God. So in repentance, we are graciously called to draw near to God once again. And there is again a promise that he will draw near to us as we draw near to him. In the Old Testament, this command was exactly the difference, uh, exactly uh, the opposite. If we think about uh, a place like Exodus 19, the Israelites have come to Mount Sinai. God's presence is coming down upon the mountain in the, in the cloud, in the lightning. And God tells Moses to tell the people, do not draw near. Tell them, do not come close. Now, Moses and the priests could, but only after they had consecrated themselves. And this is similar also for the priests and their work in the temple. They could only draw near into the holy places after they had consecrated themselves. Do not draw near. But here, James is inviting us in repentance to draw near through the shed blood of Jesus. Speaking of Jesus and his high priestly work of making himself the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Hebrews 7.19 says, 
a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It is through Jesus, always, that we draw near to God. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that when you draw near to God, when you draw near to God, that like the prodigal son returning, what you will find is before you can even get a a word of repentance out, you will find fatherly arms embracing you, welcoming you, loving you, forgiving you, and restoring you completely. Alec Matir says, God enriches with the grace of his presence those who obey his command to seek his presence. So practically, how do we, how do we draw near to God? The, the means that God has provided his children are what have long been called the ordinary means of grace, his word, hearing from him, prayer, speaking with him, participation in the Lord's Supper and fellowship with God's people. These are provided by God and empowered by the Spirit to help us to draw near to God to receive strength and nourishment in our spiritual life in Christ. The third aspect. The third aspect of repentance is draw near to God. The fourth aspect of repentance that James provides is turn from sinful actions and attitudes. This is in the second sentence of verse 8. Follow along as I read it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's the idea. In repentance, we are to turn away from sinful actions and attitudes and turn to actions and attitudes that love God and Love neighbor. The the cleansing of hands represents the need to turn from sinful actions and behaviors, and the purify your hearts represents the need to turn from sinful attitudes and mindsets. James is leveraging Old Testament notions of pursuing ethical purity. Isaiah chapter 1, 16 through 17 gives us a picture of turning away from and turning to. God through the prophet tells his people, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean, that is, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. That's the turning away from it. Here is the turning to in, in the next verse. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Please the, plead the widow's cause. We need to change both our behavior and our attitudes. As one commentator said, repentance of attitude without change in conduct is no repentance at all. Nor can we expect to change our behavior without seriously changing the thoughts and attitudes that lie behind it. Repentance must involve both hands and heart. Each is in need of change because it is with both that we have strayed from God. By God's grace, we do need to pursue real change in our actions and attitudes. We need to pursue the change of putting off and putting on. And to do that, we need to think critically about our actions and attitudes. So let's just 
leverage what James has been talking to us about in our passages here. Earlier in chapter four, the sinful actions were fighting and arguing and getting angry with others. And in verse 12, it was speaking evil against and judging others. Now, diagnosing our actions is much easier than diagnosing our attitudes because we can see our actions. That said, diagnosing our attitudes is critical because we, we can't expect to experience change in our behavior unless we also change the underlying attitudes and mindset. Now, in this instance, James does the work for us. James says that we fight and get angry with others because we're not getting what we want. Sadly, that simple. James says that we fight, we get angry with others because we're not getting what we want. But underneath of that is spiritual adultery, James says. There's something worldly that we love more than God. Now, when we're speaking against or judging others, James says that what's underneath that is arrogance, the the kind of arrogance that presumes ourself to be God, the judge, able to perfectly discern the intentions and motives of others in both opposition to God and not loving neighbor is at work. And if we're going to put off anger, put off idolatry, put off love of the world, put off not loving others, we need to confess those sins to God. That's where putting off starts. It is Humble, honest confession to God. It's walking in the light of confession. And let me encourage you to be specific. Be specific about what you wanted, what you loved, what you desired more than God. Be specific about the arrogance and unloving attitudes you had. Be specific about your actions and their implications, but confess. Confess knowing that God is eager to give you grace for change, give you grace for forgiveness. He's eager to give you grace for change in your attitudes and resultant actions. Those, those actions that he wants us to start putting on is what we heard at the end of chapter three, the wisdom from above that's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That you might be inclined to think, this is a pullback for a moment, you, you might be inclined to think that you first should clean yourself up and then draw near to God. But that's the exact opposite logic of James and of the gospel. First, we're called to draw near to God and know and enjoy and experience the grace of his presence, and then and only then are we called to proper motivation to pursue moral and ethical change. Turn from your sinful actions and attitudes. That's the fourth aspect of repentance. And then the fifth and final one is grieve over your sin. This is found in verse nine. Follow along as I read it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the idea. Repentance involves heartfelt grief over the realities and implications of your sin. True repentance involves a, a sober realization that your sin, especially relational strife, that's what we're talking about here in this context, it causes relational dysfunction and it is fundamentally against God. Listen, our, our sin is not personal foibles or idiosyncrasies that we get to chalk up to, well, it's the way it's always been. You're going to have to deal with it. No, James told us that our unmet desires can cause us to crush folks in the way of getting what we want. James told us that our, our sin can cause us to put ourselves in the place of God and just wretchedly judge others. That's not a foible. Our sin is destructive with others. It is rebellion against God. And apart from faith in Jesus and his shed blood, it deserves God's wrath. And so James calls us to have a heartfelt grief over our sin. We're not just to regret our sin, but to grieve, mourn our sin and its effects. As one pastor said, if we, are, if we are not more emotional over our sin and our salvation, if we're not more emotional over our sin than we are over our sports team's successes or failures, the plot twists in our favorite films, our children's achievements or disappointments, and so on, then there's something wrong. And that something is that we do not appreciate what our sin is and what it cost Jesus to rescue us from it. Sin is not cheap. The grief that we should be experiencing is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. It's a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret because he warns in that same verse, worldly grief produces death. Look, in worldly grief, we, we feel terrible about our sin. Indeed, there might be tears, but not because we think of our sin as against God, but because we fear what earthly consequences there will be of our sin. Loss of reputation, loss of friendships, loss of job maybe, loss of marriage, loss of, you fill in the blank. Worldly grief is focused on us. The godly grief, focused on God. There's grief over our sin, sinful actions, sinful attitudes, because we know that they are fundamentally against God. It is fundamentally cosmic treason. There's tears and grief, but with hope. Hope for change, hope for forgiveness. Like ironically, as the grievousness as the grievousness of our sin increases, so will the sweetness of our forgiveness in Christ. Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. By God's grace, let's experience a, a godly grief over our sin. And as we do, as we walk through James's Steps of repentance, I trust, will eventually sing out like David did. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. 
You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Called to grieve over our sin. Relational strife is unavoidable. You at some point will be the cause for such an occasion. You will get angry and argue to get what you want. And I think most of the times those things happen with the people that we love the most. None of us are exempt from the sinful dysfunction in our hearts. All of us are in need of the treatment of repentance. You see, since sin underlies relational strife, James tells us that the treatment is humble repentance. First and foremost, he calls us to resubmit, humbly resubmit to God, to reorder our lives and loves underneath him for the purpose of obedience. He tells us that there's spiritual warfare, though, behind our relational strife, and so we must resist the devil, knowing that he will flee from us if we do. Our sin brings dysfunction into our relationship with God, so we're called to draw near to him. And once we have drawn near to God, we are called to turn from our sinful actions and attitudes, to put those off and put on actions and attitudes that are pleasing to God, the wisdom from above. And then we're to experience heartfelt grief over the realities and implications of our sin. Brothers and sisters, your sin might be great, but God's grace is greater. God is eager to empower you to walk in the humility of repentance and then to experience more of his extravagant grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text. We, we thank you that you worked in James to give us this wisdom from above. This wisdom from above that, that confronts each and every one of us with the, the truth that we, we need to check ourselves as the cause of relational conflict, but there is hope for change for the sin that remains and lies underneath our sinful actions. There is hope for change. I pray, would you help us to not hear these things and walk away unchanged, but to hear these things and by your grace, pursue change, pursue repentance for our sin. We love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.